I, you know, people will tell you that in your life, that it really boils down to maybe one thing, turning your life on its axis like that. And really, it was a snooker game that turned it for me. An actual snooker, refereeing a snooker game uh, from a team from Ardoin in North Belfast. That's what turned my life to come here. You're all very welcome to another episode of Irish in Toronto. Today, I'll be chatting with Hugo Straney. Hugo is the voice of the Irish community here in Canada and has been since he began hosting his own show on Chin Radio back in 1988. I would say that Hugo is the most ubiquitous Irish person in Toronto. He shows up everywhere, from commentating on the St. Patrick's Day Parade and the GA Finals to hosting the Toronto Rose of Tralee and his own radio show every Sunday morning at 10am. He has done it all. An energetic and engaging person, Hugo has been providing a link at home, or link to home for the many of Irish community here in Canada over the past 30 years. On a personal level, the fascinating conversations he has in his radio show inspired me to initially put together this podcast, so I'd like to thank him for that. His journey from Belfast to Toronto as a teenager in the 1970s is a fascinating one, and I know you'll enjoy it. I begin our conversation by asking Hugo to tell me about when he came to Toronto. Well, I've been here... My sister had been here since 1967, my late sister Lily. And then in 1973, she had her first child, Martine, and she decided to take her back to, to Belfast. Uh, Belfast was in full conflict at the time that the troubles was raging then. And as a young kid uh, growing up in West Belfast or lots of parts of the North of Ireland, you know, you weren't, uh, you were being arrested and taken away by the forces at that time. I just so happened to be, one night I went to play snooker uh, with a friend of mine, and this huge bomb went off, a 100-pound bomb went off, shook a building, and within seconds, usually the how it rolled out was the security forces, British Army would come and seal the place off, come in and take some people away for questioning. They came into this St. Peter's CYMS, Catholic Young Men's Society, uh, I was actually referee in the snooker game. Walked around. Bit strange this night because the guy who was leading them, the sergeant or captain, whatever, he had taken out a short arm. You don't usually see short arms taken out with a lanyard on them. And he walked around with a short arm, uh, 45, pointing at everyone. Game continued. Game went on. That's how, you know, yeah. you were told to just go on with your normal life. And he came right up to me and said, you, used a few expletives, out. Me and a lot of other people thrown in the back of a Saracen tank, which happened, you know, it happened frequently. And we were taken away to Hastings Street Barracks, questioned with about 200 people from the district. And at that time, I'd just taken up what had happened at school was that I'd taken what they call now a gap year in between O levels and A levels. And I had, had a little job. I was actually a newspaper boy, but I had a little job in this printing factory and had set a early examination for the Royal Mail for the post office and that next day was going for the second interview for to be hired by Royal Mail in the telecommunications and you know everybody scooped you're in the and so I'm released about 1 o'clock in the morning with a lot of other people after being questioned and outside the barracks is my mother my aunt and my sister and my mother who had done this a few times before it's just, it's like, it's easy. And so we're going we're gonna to go home now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my sister is appalled at this. She believes that I'm connected, that I'm in the IRA or in the Nafana, and she can't believe this. And my mother said, look, this is how it is. And the next morning where I'm getting up and getting ready to go to uh, set this other examination, my sister took me down to uh, Canada House and sponsored me to come to Canada. Uh, how, how old were you? 16? I was just turned 17. Yeah. So I was in Canada before my 18th birthday. And that was it. Just like, uh, you know, talking to people, uh, you know, academic people, because we're in a house of academia here. Uh, you know, people will tell you that in your life, that it really boils down to maybe one thing, turning your life on its axis like that. And really, it was a snooker game that turned it for me. An actual snooker, refereeing a snooker game 
uh, from a team from Ardoin in North Belfast. That's what turned my life to come here. And, you know, and my mother, I'd come on a Tuesday. My brother, Frank, had just got married on a Saturday. I came on a Tuesday. He came on a Thursday. And my younger brother, John, was taken out of school for a year because troubles were, it was, it was mad then. And all three of us were here in Canada. My oldest brother, Tommy, uh, was back in Belfast because he had four kids. And my sister was here in Canada. We were all here. My mother and father were, were left at home. And that was it. I came here. And that's that was the and that's the one thing I even say to you, Pa. No one ever forgets the day they came to Canada. Yeah. Right? Do you remember that date? Yeah, I do. Twenty second of August, twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was the fourteenth of May, nineteen seventy four. That's 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 like your birth date and your anniversary, yeah. whatever it is. It's a date an immigrant never forgets. Yeah, that's you know? true. Did you have any say in the matter at all? No, <laughs> I, I I wish I had. But then at seventeen, you think you know everything. But uh, I think. Um, I, I, I never feared my father. I respected my father. But my mother, uh, my mother was like like most households, my mother was, she said, go. Just go for six months. Go for six months or a year, and if you don't like it, you can come back. And it's your sister, you know, and she was insistent to bring me over here, and that's, uh, you know, uh, for the first, like, I don't think the immigrant ever really gets over it, but for those first couple of years, it was like, what? I had no friends here. What's going on? I had my brothers here, and my sister was here, and and there was a there was a bit of an Irish community here. Just, just I'd always been here, so it was thriving, you know. Yeah. So I'm gonna ask you a question. You don't have to answer this, but did you feel like at 17 years of age, you don't have to say how you feel now? Or, but at 17 years of age, did you feel like you were letting down people by not staying and, and fighting the good fight? Of course, yeah. Of course, yes. Like uh, some people will say to you. Uh, well, at least you know the people who are over there who who stayed and went through. Yeah, yeah. They say, well, at least I didn't leave. And I like to use this term. I said, well, you were lucky. Yeah, you were lucky. Yeah. You didn't have to leave. You know, because some people really didn't have a choice. I, I did. I have a choice. Yes, I did. But I trusted my I trusted my family and my yeah. sister. And I I do. Of course, I have regrets that I didn't didn't stay there and, and see things out. And you know. It's that's just your life. Your life. Your life it's goes easy on. for me to ask that question. No, but no, it's that true. It's, it's listen. It's yeah. a thing that we all go through. That's <laughs> yeah. that's a question. Of course, yeah. of course. That's that's the life of an immigrant. You know what was it like? Uh, so coming here at seventeen, you have the normal issues of you know, finding accommodation. Obviously, you have your family and stuff. But what was your relationship like with home as a seventeen-year-old? Were you were you just normally homesick or? Uh yes, yeah, yeah. I look. From no age, I was always industrious. I've had a, a part-time job since I was like nine, ten years old. Yeah. I always kind of knew how that, you know, you're gonna need, you're gonna need money to, to figure this. Yeah. So I, I had, I had a paper route, grew it into uh, a morning paper, the Irish News in the morning, uh, Belfast Telegraph. And I, I, I worked for this guy. I was industrious. I schemed. I did all this. <laughs> And then I that gap year I took this job, so I was I I, I had I had money, I had aspirations of owning a car, um, you know. And the one thing at home when you're you grow up with guys, you know, you grow up. There was three or four guys who were like closer than family. You know that three mates yeah. that you had, Jim McNeil, striker, guy called Peter Kane and Joe Heaney. There's another guy called Huey O'Pray, Soapy was his nickname. We all hung about like I mean they were that was very tight. This guy Peter Kane was like. You know, he was all Ireland Irish dance time. Me and him were like, so that when I got here, that was like, ah, oh, it's tough, it's tough, it's tough, it's tough. Not, and that was that was a big thing. But what was going on in Belfast and the north of Ireland at the time just wasn't right. Just that wasn't normal. That was just wasn't. And it was just there was a mass exodus of people. Around the world, and so that's you know that a lot of people came here in the nineteen seventies. Okay, and what, yeah. yeah, you can tell actually from the even looking at the GEA thing. I'd be involved with like there seems to be a massive of um, influx of people in the seventies, and then that wasn't replicated again maybe until the recession of two, you know the late two thousands. Yeah, I'd say, but in the eighties, in the eighties, there was a there was a there was a lot of immigration in the eighties. More women, I'd say, because this place was packed with nineties in the eighties. Yeah. Oh man, it was mad, but. Yeah, it was like, but but they've been coming here from the fifties. There was a lot of you know people, you know pioneers who came here in the fifties. 
sixties, and then the seventies just opened up for people. Yeah. All in this in the GTA here, they all came here. Hamilton, you know, they all moved in. A lot of them moved to Brampton, and there's a lot of people from our parish because you can see you can talk about your own parish, but the parish of St Peter's where I come from, it's like. They, they have a Belfast reunion here. You might as well just call it a St. Peter's reunion because, <laughs> you know, everybody just knows. And we all kind of talk the same. You, you know, you so do, yeah. You, you can, there's a kind of a, there's an easy going away with people who know that they know what, they know how it all yeah. rolls out, you know. I, I actually, you know, like down, kind of like from Clare, like and we, we, our, we kind of look at the North as having the same accent sometimes, which is obviously not the case as your, your eyes have told me by the, and then, but I never, obviously I never lived there. So I never really was able to determine the differences in the accents until I moved to Toronto. And now, because there's so many people here from Derry, Antrim, yeah. Armagh, now I can obviously tell. And even, I know fellas from Belfast and from, we'll say I'm dealing with hurlers, I'll add from maybe the country up around a bit north of that, yeah. So. In a nanosecond you can do that <laughs> Yeah, it's obvious But even, even for me, I can tell West Belfast yeah. accent in a millisecond <laughs> because there's a kind of a, you know, I'm more slower now a bit rounded off now but I can tell a Belfast accent in a millisecond yeah. like I mean meeting someone I go like, I know I can always point it down to the street where yeah. he's from not really but you know because there's there's a north uh, there's a south but West Belfast is very very distinctive okay. accent you know yeah you know? you so moving here in, in early 70s was your accent an obvious indicator to others what not only that you were Irish but what part of Ireland you were from yes uh there's an old joke that and my wife doesn't like telling people tell us about. Why do you talk so fast? Why do you talk so fast? And like, you know, the, the line that I used to, you know, look, where I come from, if I was to say, look, over there, there's a man with a gun. <laughs> oh, well, that's how it would roll out. Yeah. Say, get down! Get down here! You know, so, yeah, it was never a stumbling block. But you, you do like you are going a mile a minute yeah. when you're talking. There's, there's a different, there's a different cadence when you kind of slow it down, and you know you have to, you know. It's still a problem though when you sometimes for everyone. That's just not me. When you go to Tim Hortons for a drive-through, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they can't. But you do. You kind of have to slow down and you know pronounce accentuate. That's it. No, I mean I, it was, but it wasn't. It wasn't a big hurdle. Yeah. yeah, you're even speaking more slowly now than you yeah, were oh, for sure. in my office 20 minutes well, ago. <laughs> 100%, 100%. Yeah, well, that's, me and you were talking about the short hurdle here, the game of the short hurdle. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm just thinking, like, as a 17-year-old, what were your, the relationship that you had with Ireland and with Belfast, did you maintain that through the 70s and 80s when things weren't good? Yes. Or how, or how did it manifest? Yeah, well, look, you know, the media, you weren't getting, you probably wouldn't even get that on. Canadian television, you would get that on American television, okay. what what was happening, atrocities. And then uh, from letters and from uh, the odd phone call, because it wasn't wasn't easy to place a phone call in those days. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, you know, so you'd, you'd hear what happened, who died, who got shot, who got assassinated. You would hear all that. That, that would roll out. And it was... They weren't happy this when yeah. we were hearing that because you know I, I remember the first kind of guy that I ever heard of was a kid that I grew up in the street with called Charlie Irvin, whose grandparents lived in the same street as me. I ran about with his brother Paul Mousy, and uh, Charlie Charlie was shot like just he was an innocent bystander just shot by the British Army, and I was like what? And like he was only like he was maybe 15, 16 at the time. So you hear that was the first real what wow, Charlie Irvin's dead. And that, but that that rolled out in the seventies. That rolled out, and then things just got progressively. And it was, and people look. There was an Irish community here. There was a Belfast community here. There was a Northern community here, uh, doing what they could. Yeah, doing what they could to, 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 to you know to try and feel a little bit better about what was going on at home. Yeah, yeah, because you know? yeah, it must have been tough. Like when this is not a good analogy to make, but I, I was in Chicago in twenty. 15 or 14 when a group of Irish students on a J1 uh, died in Berkeley when they collapsed off the balcony yeah, I didn't know terrible the tragedy. To it. it was terrible. terrible tragedy but you know we had a vigil and things like that and I remember you know feeling because I you know, felt like I was the same age that it could have happened to us we were on the J1 so I felt close to them and even now talking a lot about tragedies but you know there was a tragedy in Monaghan last week with the two teenage girls terrible. and I have definitely more of a connection with that living here 
I don't know these people. Like for you to to, to I was going to say to get a call, but to to get a letter or force a phone call and, and hear that you know a friend has been arrested, a friend has been murdered or assassinated, whatever way you want to use, um, that must it, it must be hard to just go about your daily life and meet someone then that doesn't know anything about your life and. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's we're not really the whole island of Ireland is not a big place. When you come when you come to this country, it's not a big place, and. As you say, when that that was a terrible, horrendous thing happened yeah. in Berkeley, because I, I know some people in the San Francisco, Oakland area there, and you, it, it's sad. It's sad and it's tragedies. It's tragedy like that young couple who had gone to a prom night, yeah. and on the way back it was very sad. It's just it's you know, yeah, know. but it's it's instantaneous now, which is, I guess, is a good thing to know that yeah. because that's because you you know, and roads in Ireland, road, driving in Ireland is not an easy thing. Yeah. It's yeah. not, and it's sad. It's just, it's very sad. But it was, it was. Look, it's part of life. That was part of life growing up. You know, the letters. You get a letter every week. Yeah. And you know, you got. I think you got newspapers like about four or five days later because there used to be a place on Young Street when I worked downtown. I'd pick up the paper. It was usually English papers. You wouldn't get Irish papers then, you know. Yeah. And then that started to come in late seventies. You know, Sunday nights at the Irish Centre, Dupont Street, the Irish papers would come in. They'd be flown in, and that was a big thing. Oh, get down, get the paper, Sunday paper. So going home on a Sunday night from the Irish Centre in Dupont Street with an Independent or an Irish paper. It was like you were almost Irish. Yeah. It was always like go home and you're reading the paper that they're reading that day. It was like, but. You hang on little things like that, yeah. Because really, it's the little things that you miss from home. That's that's basically you know that, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, but for you, like for you to go home that Sunday and you know cherishing that newspaper that you know was a couple of days old probably. Whereas now you bring Irish information to people here and whoever else is listening. Um, so it's it must make you feel very. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. It's and. Um, Look, it's good. I still still have a guy who does a newscast. We talk about that, but uh, more there's a lot going on in our own community here. And what's yeah. sad to think about it is that there's a lot of people who are passing away who have done like you know Seamus Grew, who was yeah. you know when I came here in the 1970s, uh, the Irish profile was national and local. So at Thursday night. On Channel 8, CFTO, every Thursday night at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, you had the Pig and Whistle show, which was an English-Irish pub. Guest artists singing on there. Ethno appeared on there. <laughs> and the Cotton Showman. All Irish guys. They they were the music. And Seamus Grew, who was a original member, Seamus passed away a week ago. And then on Sunday nights, at 7 o'clock on CBC, National, the Irish Rover show. So that was like... Two big things. And then on, I think it was Monday night or Tuesday night, out of Hamilton, you had the Harry Hibbs show, which was, he was from Newfoundland, but Harry, yeah. he was this well-known entertainer. And uh, you had, then you had uh, Ryan's Fancy on. There was a big, there was a, it's in the 70s here, there was a lot of Irish stuff going on here. A lot of Irish stuff going on here, national and local stuff. It was, you know, it was a big thing. Yeah. And, well, it's kind of morphed into different things now, but no, 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 it was, it was still, a, still a bit of an art. And, you know, it's always because the Irish Rovers from Palomina, the lead singer was a guy called Jimmy Ferguson who came from uh, North Belfast, right? So you hear a guy on, ah! So it was, it was cool. It was yeah. cool. It was cool. What was it like to, uh, what, what kind of events were on at the Irish at the Irish Centre in Dupont? Uh, Dupont Street, I just kind of opened then. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, there was really McVeigh's, the Man of Aaron, and the Tara. They were kind of the, the pubs then. Tara used to be up here on Brewer Street. Man of Aaron was on Spadina and McVeigh's. And then there was the Maple Leaf Ballroom because the show bands were still in then. And disco hadn't really, you know. <laughs> and you'd go to the Maple Leaf on a Saturday night. I mean, I, I used to go there because my sister used to, you know, it was illegal for me to drink yet. <laughs> Big thing that they used to do was on the long weekends, they would have a midnight dance, which would start at 10 o'clock and go till 4 in the morning. Oh. Fantastic place. It's sad now to think that it's a goodwill store, but John Gilligan, Jimmy McVeigh, all them different people who you know there was a there was a big Irish presence and there was a few Irish pubs to go to. Then you know that's what it was. And then there was other places like the Four Ps and yeah, Four Provinces Club, which was down on Front Street. And yeah, there was a, there was there was places to go. The Leaf, and then Disco came in. 
my younger brother John worked in the Leaf, and then it became a, a venue for bands. U2, probably one of the biggest bands, you know, whether you're a fan or not, their first engagement was at the Maple Leaf Ballroom. Oh. You know? Yeah. Uh, Adam and the Ants, Chrissy Hanger Pretenders, uh, see a lot of good acts at the Leaf when they're bringing it. Mostly what you'd see at the Danforth Music Hall now. That's yeah. where they brought it in. It's a tremendous dance floor in the Leaf. Maple Leaf, yeah. I was a, just like the big ballrooms and yeah. all, you know? And so, and so that, that's kind of, I suppose that influx of Irish artists or events that take place at the culture, at the, I keep calling it the culture centre, but it was just the Irish centre. Yeah, the Irish centre, the Irish centre had, they had acts and then the 70s, uh, your Sunday nights was good night there. Yeah. And then Car- Caravan came in, which was a thing they started here in 76, 77, which is a, you know, all the cultures. And so they started Neil McNeil High School in the East End and then they moved it to DuPont Street. And then the players were going then. Some of the Irish players were going, they started up. They were uh, the local theatre group. Seen many great playing Dupont Street, you know, a lot of Jonathan Lenz, Kevin O'Shea's, Kevin Kennedy's, all them, you know, uh, Barbara Taylor, all them fantastic, talented people. They are still thriving, front of Irish players. It is, yeah. They'll be brown bread by Roddy Dyde. Yeah. This October, yeah. November, I think. Yeah. Um, but it must have felt so cool to, to have that much access to Irish culture events, which you may not have had at home. Had you been no. home at that time? Period? No, because when you were growing up in in the seventies, everyone in the body wanted to be uh, a glam rocker, <laughs> you know, like it was just it was coming on, yeah. you know, your Gilbert O'Sullivan's and your your Slades and stuff like that, and ELO and you know, just of course Joe Dolan and all that, and they, they were still rolling out Thin Lizzy, but this you, it, it, it's it's something about us that we're we can adapt to everything. Uh, we're we're naturally inclined to entertain. And to be, to be that little bit of talent that that they get up, we certainly know we certainly know about how to entertain yeah. as an Irish people. We can entertain ourselves. That's how it is, you know. Because we've been doing, you're probably doing shows when you were a kid, right? <laughs> you here and give us, come on, you got to have a party piece, and that was it. So it was, it was a, listen, there was a lot of Irish entertainment in those days, seventies, right into the eighties, and that's how I got into doing my bit, you know. Because yeah. my brother John, he started out in uh, maybe late seventies, early eighties. He started singing at McVeigh's. I'm with a guy called Jim Taylor and a couple of other different guys playing guitar with him. They started with a group called Shabin. So that's and that's how that all rolled out. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you get into show business? Well, how that happened was uh, I was working at General Motors, and there was a lot of people from all countries: Scottish, Irish, UK, back home. And you work at shift work there, two weeks on, two weeks off, days and afternoons working with this guy, Billy McDonald, and he said to me, look, we could get into a services league on a, and plus it was GA. I mean, I was playing GA, but soccer, he said to me, uh, we got a soccer team, he said, if we raise enough money, the union will match it, and we can get into this. He said, how are we going to raise funds? I said, let's have a dance. Really? Yeah, come on. So, this is 78, 79, I think I was even married, and, I was like, DJ, I said, oh, I can DJ that. I said, nice to see these guys. So I go, I rent the equipment, stole a few records off my sister, went to Sam the Record Man, bought a couple of LPs, a few 45s, and that was it. That was it. That was it. Bang. Next thing you know, I get, I do another soccer dance, and I got a gig. I got my first, no one will ever forget the first gig. I got my first gig, I got paid $65. I did it at the Lithuanian Hall on O'Connor, Eggington Avenue, O'Connor Drive. Uh, it was the 25th wedding anniversary. That was it. That was it. And there was a place going at the time called Paddy's Place on Eglinton Avenue, uh, owned by Paddy Canavan, the Fairbank Social Club. And I'd been there doing a couple of things for Irish dancing. It was him and Paddy and his wife, Colette, daughter Kathy, were all into the Irish dancing. And I'd done a couple of fundraisers in there for the Butler School of Irish Dancing, the Gregoire School of Irish Dancing, and there was all people from home. Just having a bit of crack, a bit of music, a bit of crack. And there was a lady there called uh, Rita Kiernan, Adam Kiernan's aunt from the Gales. And she said, look, I've seen this thing at home uh, called A Crazy Crazy Night. And I go, really? I said, yeah. A guy called Sil Fox, who used to be the opening act for, for Dickie Rock, comedian. I think he's still alive, Sil. And he does this thing. It's like a game show. Get people up. Do this, do that, have a game of bingo, and then we finish up with a dance. And I go, oh, okay. So she tells me what's happening. 
1982, we do our first crazy night. There's a snowstorm. I think 28, 30, 40 people came. Sunday night in February 1982. This is not going down too well. I got, I picked up a second hand tuxedo. I was going <laughs> to be this master ceremony. I had this all worked out. I think later that summer we did another one and it was a lineup around the block. And it was just, it was madcap games, bingo, you know, name that tune. And as I said before, it was an influx of nannies then. And that's where the leaf was kind of wading out. You say nannies, you mean female? Irish female, 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 Irish female nannies. Yeah, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of, you know, in male, a lot of guys coming too, but there was a lot of nannies coming here for work. And, you know, that's, as people tell you about the show band era, boy wants to meet girl. Got to go a place, you know, the, the ballroom. Boy wants to meet girl was another venue for Patty's Place. And a lot of people met their, their mate at Patty's Place. And this, this, we did, you couldn't do it every week. You couldn't do this crazy every week because it, just, it was just crazy. It was mad. It was mad. It was a mad kind of, it was like, would you go if you go away on a holiday to an all you know all yeah. resort <laughs> all these different so I, I had to compact that it came a bingo games and it was ca- there was cash prizes yeah. you needed to give away cash uh you know and we finished off a name that you're drinking a yard it was a, and that was it but it was the gathering place. and then Patty started midnight dances on long weekends and I I can I can remember <laughs> vividly being at Patty's place to my last song going on at five o'clock in the morning and st- Pat a lot of times he sold out of everything everything the only thing to drink was water running water <laughs> it just and that's how it was because it was we're instinctively we're a, we're we're hospitable people we need a better we're social we're social we need to be around other people having a good time sure there was the odd rumble but that's okay that's how it happens yeah. young people alcohol yeah. things go off but I and that's where that's what kind of all that started. That's why yeah. kind of, as Mo Green would say in the in the Godfather, that's where I made my bones to kind of how to read an audience, what to do, what instinctively what to do. DJing was only a part of that, yeah. and so then I morphed into this DJ, this mobile DJ, and that was it. I was on. I was on my way. Especially a live audience, like reading a live. Yeah, audience. you need yeah. you need you you need to know you need to know what's coming down the pipe here. You need to. I mean, you you just. You have to have to react, and I, I was never a drinker anyway, so I was kind of you know to get on to have that peripheral vision, what's going on in front of you, keep because it's impossible to please everybody, but you got to try your best. Yeah, you got to try your best to please what's in front of you. I just listened to a podcast with Fat Boy Slim, and he's probably the same age as you, I'd say. Anyway, but he he stopped drinking maybe fourteen years ago, but he reckons he's a better DJ now. Because oh yeah, he, I, I, he can read the crowd. He's not just reading I did, himself. I did. I'm still doing weddings. Yeah. I've, done, I've done over. You know, I've done thousands of weddings, yeah. and every wedding's the same, but every wedding's different. And I was at a resort, with a young girl from Cork, and it wasn't a big wedding, and there was children there, and you got to, you got to, you got to try and get everybody in, and it, it worked out. It all, it, it was a fantastic night. Her mother was over from Cork with her sisters. It all worked out. You gotta give him a bit of Irish. Yeah. Not you, you, you. And like, you know, in those days in the eighties, you know, music wasn't accessible for anything. And I, I don't want to say this flippantly. Yeah. But this is honestly when anybody's booking an act, a DJ act, or even a live singing act, you're not booking that guy for the music. You're not because music is so accessible now. Yeah. It's, it's not a niche thing anymore. Basically, what you're booking that person for is Atmosphere. The, the personality. Yeah. You're booking him for his personality because he better be able to cover that. You better be able to know what to do. You know, a lot of kids started to just play music, don't say anything. You gotta, you gotta. I pride myself. I don't know how many other DJs do this, but my equipment is behind me. Yeah, I'm in front of the equipment. I'm, I'm out here. You're the show. Yeah, well, I'm not the show, but I, I'm here. I'm here. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm emceeing it. I'm. I'm hopefully in control of the situation and I'm playing the music and basically what happens now when you get the weddings is one of the things you say to the bride and groom is tell me the song you don't want to play and, and there's never really 
you know, there used to be a way to want the chicken dance. Trust me, the chicken dance is so bad, it's back. Yeah. And the macro music, music is music. You just yeah. gotta, you gotta get a flow. And as Christy Dignam remarked there, the late Christy Dignam, sometimes you can't listen to fast music all the time. You can't have, there is, sure there is functions I play that's gonna be dance music for three, four hours, that's fine. But when you have adults there, you need to slow it down. Yeah. You need to have a slow dance. Give a couple of slow ones. And kind of have a bit of a flow to it. And that morphed into that. And then a radio show comes out. Yeah. So it just it came up, is the way you phrase it. It came <laughs> up, uh, it came up um, in 1988. We spoke about the immigration thing. Yeah. My sister had died in 1983 who brought me here. Lily. And she'd gone home and she died at home. And uh, her family was at home and they'd since come back. And it was traumatic. Yeah. She was only 35. Yeah. And within a year, 18 months, my father had died. Okay. And that was another. He was at home. In he was at home. He was at home. 65, went out for a walk, died of a heart attack. Just retired. So this was like, my wife's father had died in 1980. He was only 58. Uh, so this is all like what you're bringing up kids it's like come on and we want to go I want to go home I had this real bad angling of go I want to go home yeah I just had enough had a mortgage on a house working what's going on the grass is always greener oh yes we know that right <laughs> so we'd gone home in 87 took the kids home went home that Christmas and I met some people and said yeah look come back because look life is going on right and because like it's hard it's hard getting jobs now but jobs are still a lot accessible at home now there's, there's a lot of work for people it's hard now here for people finding jobs you can but anyway I thought things lined up and I come back and my wife says okay look listen Let's just see it out after Latter St. Patrick's Day. This is 1988. And when you get back to Toronto, come back to Toronto, there's already been a couple of meetings for a parade. A few people who are involved in the parade. My own brother was there. A few meetings up at the Holiday Inn. And there's going to be a parade. Put, so put this in context. There hasn't been a St. Patrick's Day. There hasn't been a St. Patrick's Parade since 18. Matthew Sheedy was piked <laughs> by uh, some people on Young Street. And so... They want to get the parade going. This is this is big news. And in the midst of all this, late January, February, I go to uh, all the boys who are going to some of the Toronto Gales, all the guys in the soccer. We're going to watch the Super Bowl at O'Grady's Bar, which was on Ellesmere at Victoria Park. We're all in there getting ready to watch the Super Bowl. It's a guys thing, and the phone goes. It's Hugo here. Oh, of course, I'm getting a lot of flack. Oh, Hugo, you little, whatever. That's a friend of mine. And he said to me, what are you doing? I said, watch the Super Bowl. He said, uh, listen, Brian Carney's giving up his radio show. I go, yeah. Well, I said, I think you should take it over. I go, yeah, right. Anyway, cut a long story a little bit short. I don't really phone Brian. I just, come on. Radio show? Forget it. I was thinking about Let's get to St. Patrick's Day here. The parade. What's this parade thing going to happen? I'm going to make a move. I'm going to go home. My kids are five and six years old. Uh, long story short, I phoned Brian. And he invited me down to his house. And he talked about the show. And I, I, was, I wasn't, I was interested, but I wasn't really interested. And I remember he had a little budgie and the budgie was flying around. <laughs> anyway, so he says to me, he starts talking about the show that he's had since 1964, called Songs from Home. They tell me, you're the guy who should take it over. And he wanted a, few, wanted a couple of bucks for it. That's okay. And, uh, he talked to me the show that it was like, he had one daughter. It was like the son he never had. So by the end of the conversation, I just, I was like, flipping like, you know, I said, Brian, Listen, I don't think you want to give this show up. I said, like, you know, like, yeah, you really want what before you're here. I go, yeah, well, I said, look, you know. I said, this, well, that's what I told him. I told him, honestly, you're talking about this is like the son you never had. Right, okay, I'll give you a call. 
And I'm going to be left. I'm not going to read a whole bit. Within two weeks, I get a call. And there was a lot of people after the show. There was a lot of people in this community after the show. This was like, and I'd heard about who was after it. Like, oh, they're in there. And I go, okay. I had, big picture was me going home. Two weeks later, I go to his house. And I go to his house while the show's actually on the radio. He taped all the shows. Yeah. So I get to him, I go, listen, Brian, I'm listening. Yeah, I taped that show on a Friday. Uh, I go, okay. He brings his wife out, Lorraine, and he goes, so I need to tell you something. But I'll let my wife tell you. And I go, okay, Lorraine. So she brings me a cup of tea. And he goes, I said, so what's going on here? I thought, thanks for your interest. Uh, we interviewed so many other people for this show and you were the only person that said that Brian shouldn't give the show up. Everybody else wanted to know when he was giving it up. You told Brian he shouldn't give it up, so I think you should take the show. What? Uh, and that was January 1988. I took over the show. Well, I was in with him about three weeks. I took over the show first week of April 1988. And that's it. And it's, look, it's not... It's commercial, it's economically driven. I had to get my own, he had lined up some sponsors for me. No one is getting rich in radio anymore because how media is how it is driven. Uh, but, you know, I just a bit of an income with the show. I'm not getting rich on it. But I'm, you know, I feel it's, I'm passionate about it. I still yeah, do it as sure. a person. And that's, 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 it's, I try to do I'm, I'm in it, like we spoke about being in the community. I'm in this community with two feet. I'm here to help the community. You know, there's a, give out a lot of people who are passing, but I'm here to interview. So that's it. I'm here. I'm yeah. a vehicle for you to tell me what's going on in this community and keep you a connection with, with Ireland. That's yeah. it. That's, 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 what we, that's what I try to do. Normally it works out. Normally it works out. Yeah. It wasn't easy during COVID. It was not easy. Oh. But COVID taught me a, a valuable lesson because I did the show on the phone. Because uh, I, I go, come on. I would drive to the station, give him the, well, he could download the music, give him a script, blah, blah, blah. And I went, what am I going to do here? So during COVID, and I'd been doing a lot of interviews. Like I took a lot of people in and let's reach out to people here. So I reached out to a lot of people. And the first big interview, I go, well, who would I like to interview? And at that time, he just released an Irish album. It was Tony Christie, Show Me the Way to Amarillo. And I reached out to Tony Christie. He was the first big guy that I got on. His people are from Mayo. His real name's Tony Fitzgerald. Yeah. His grandparents came, he lives in the Doncaster region, and he had this, uh, the Great Irish Songbook that he released. And that rolled on to Talked to Christy Dignan, Father Brian Darcy, Dana, uh, all, all them people. Even, you know, last Sunday, just to bring on, tell me your story. Because, you know, because COVID, COVID taught me what, what did people need more than anything, COVID information. This thing, don't want to know about your life because you're struggling like everybody else. Let's reach out to somebody's life. Let's hear about them on, you know, just to come on. I, you know, I interviewed a guy, I met him on a cruise ship, who there's a park named after him in Aurelia, Ontario, who represented Ireland in boxing and Olympics, represented Canada in the Olympics, was a referee for Canada in the Olympics. His name is Walter Henry. There's a, there's a, uh, he, there's a park named after him in Aurelia, Canada. So it's, we're everywhere. Yeah. We're everywhere. <laughs> and that's, that's what I try to do on the, yeah. on a radio show, just to try and be informative and to entertain. Your, your ability at being hopefully able I'm not talking too much here. No, that's impossible. Impossible. I want you talking more uh, than I am. But like when, when you look at like your ability, so your job involves like facilitating conversations and facilitating people telling their stories. I I think back to like the event that changed your life was you were facilitating game of snooker. You weren't playing; you were refereeing it. Have you always had that kind of role in your family, your personal life of kind of being the one to? Now you're you're quite a you're a, you're an extroverted person. But I wouldn't. I don't think you kind of push your own story on too many people. This might be one of the first times you've actually shared your story. You're right about that. Yeah. What? Uh, that's that's a, what? That's magical. You should ask because <laughs> that's I never. 
we all talk about ourselves, but I never really want to tell. Look, the hardest thing for an Irishman, because I am an Irishman, is to accept is a compliment. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah. We don't we don't hang that well. Yeah. You know, we just thank you and bow our head. Yeah. That's and it's you know, and that's very intriguing. You should ask that because yeah. to, to bring that, you know, I, I don't I don't go out and get on a pulpit and tell how, how my because every story's different. Every story's different. Mine's mine's just a little bit different from yours. Just yeah. a little bit different. It's just it's just it's destiny. Yeah. Destiny. Yeah. Because who do I want to be? I wanted to be the, looking like a damn hurls in the corner. I wanted to be one of the greatest sports stars ever. I wanted to play for Andrew. I wanted to play for Celtic. I wanted to play maybe even for anybody. <laughs> I wanted to be I wanted to be that guy. It doesn't work out that way. Sometimes you, even in your late middle 20s, I wanted to be that guy. My Gilly career almost finished and ended on the same day. Paul. Okay. I... Uh, in 1982, my brother-in-law was probably uh, had won an all under nine, under 19, under 21 All Ireland medal for Antrim. Nice. Antrim's greatest day in sports. Football or hurling? Football. Football. Uh, he was on that team, and uh, he was very well known here. Probably one of the leading lights here in the 70s. Billy Miller, his name is. So Billy got involved with. Uh, Posted to play for St. Vincent's, goes on to play for Gary Owen. Gary Owen is uh, going, Tommy White, Paddy's place has a soccer team. Uh, Billy says to me, uh, his sister Kathleen, my sister-in-law, she wants to come to Canada. You were on a point system then. Uh, let's go. We can get her more points if you get her with this guy, Mike Riley, who was guy instrumental. He was instrumental to get my own wife to Canada. Mike was like, Great guy. Why don't you play for Gary Owen? And I'd been to Lawrence Park watching Gaelic football. Trust me, there was no quarter given in those days. It was, it was like Sean Hart's ball. It was like, it was like, but, but that, that was another gathering point on a Sunday. Yeah. You go to Lawrence Park, that little stand where you sat there, and, but that, that was like, there was a bit. Of, there was hurling playing there too. Sean South, I remember. Uh, but oh, come on, anyway. But they were bigger, stronger guys than I ever was. Anyway, that's. Roll out for Gary Owen. And I like to tell this story about. So Billy says, Come on. They're going to go in. They're going to start full forward line. So we're in the dressing room with a hand up with sweaters. I think I got 14 or 15. I get it. And Tommy White, he gets up and he lines everybody out in the dressing room like you did with your primary school. Yeah. Yeah. You know how you remember how you used to lie? I love doing that now. <laughs> you know when yeah. you line out in the dressing room, stand there, yeah. stand there. I go, I haven't done that since secondary school, right? But anyway, it was a, it's a zonal thing, right? It's a zone play, right? So anyway, I don't know what I got myself into. So we're in. I play with a guy called Harry Duggan, another famous near from the past from Derry, uh, who smoked about five or six cigarettes on the sideline. Anyway, we go out. Wonderful day. My sisters are. They're all there. The wife's there. Everybody. Bum bum bum. Marvelous day, Centennial Park. I think it's power coming into me. This is easy. Not that over, right? I'm a lot younger than the guys. And this ball comes in and it falls to this guy and he kind of stumbles on it. And I got a little bit carried away. I went in, instead of going in with one hand, I went in with two hands. Yeah. I'm in like a scrum. I didn't come out quick enough and this guy's elbow caught me right on the bridge of the nose. Yeah. You know on those old Bugs Bunny cartoons you see stars? <laughs> that was me. Yeah. I go to the sideline, uh, Eddie Thornton, another great guy. And Eddie says to me, gives me a sponge, and we're good. And Tommy White comes over. Let's see this. Let's, let's have a look at you. And my head is like, and he goes, uh, Oh, you're going at halftime. I said, Okay, it can't be that bad. I knew I, my, my nose is broken. It comes halftime. I'm feeling nauseous. Eddie Thornton says to me, Let's have a look at that, Hugo. Takes him, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said these magical words, Hugo. Is there anyone here belonging to you? And I woke up in the Tobago hospital. Yeah. When someone says that to you, yeah. you know there's something wrong. Yeah. And I played a little bit after that, but I wasn't really the same guy. My nose was just twisted. Probably had a concussion and stuff. Oh, yeah. I was like, a, <clears throat> you know, I meet Jimmy Kennedy now, who 
yeah. struck me on the, you know. Yeah. And I, I called Jimmy my plastic surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I said my plastic surgeon is in the room. Because, it was, you know, he didn't, there was no malicious there. He didn't, he just came out of the tack and that was it. So my, and I went on to play the Gales for a couple of years. I think I won, yeah. we won a League Cup or something. Or, you know, but I was, you know, I was never, I was never that guy after. And I played yeah. a little bit of soccer, but that was, so that was my, my GAA. Yeah. All but look, it's 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 a thing we have to nourish here. The GAA yeah. here, it's still a it's a still a big part of this community. Oh, very big part. And I, what's lovely to see is, first of all, in the nineties, the women kind of saved the GAA here. Yeah. Okay. How women have progressed, ladies GAA have progressed here, which is a fantastic thing, and how hurling is returned. Yeah. Because having interviewed Michael Murrahertig, I always think about what he said. Uh how old Ireland is, hurling is older than Ireland. Yeah. So hurling is Ireland. See, that's and from, that's from a carry man. That's prophetic. Like, that's yeah. so that's prophetic. When you get right to it, hurling was around before. Yeah. Uh, so hurling is Ireland, yeah. and that you, I that's just that's that's that goes beyond anything. Yeah. You know, so it's it's magical. I just wish I was that what. <laughs> wish I was that guy, but I see the short hurl coming in now. <clears throat> it's a finesse game now. Why shouldn't it be? I can't see anybody. I can't see anybody beating her Limerick for the next couple of years. Oh no, Limerick is just. I think we should just, we should get you out to commentate on the finals there. Or something well, I have done it. Yeah. I have done it. But one of the lovely things about because Sean Hart spoke about the ladies tour that came here. Yeah. I went to. I supplied some PA for that just Good. to play some music, just Good. to get a bit of atmosphere, and the one and only Marty Morrissey. Came to the park that day. Uh, he was here. He was here for the first three days of the of the trip. Helen O'Rourke, and it was a magical time. And so I said, Marty, come on, let's commentate on the game. And he commentated on the game. Ah, uh, brilliant! And it was magical. It was just like, yeah. Hello, he was kind of tongue in cheek. That's just another little snippet out of my life that I go. Cool. The other thing about that tour was they're going away party at. Quinn Steakhouse, they wanted me to do just a little bit, just you know, MC and whatever, play some music. And the girls were like, because girls are far more, women are far more sophisticated than we'll ever be. And it just, they, they knew it was all, like it wasn't all Ireland, but they were there, Gemma Begley and all these great players. And I started playing Rock the Boat. Now, you know the Rock the Boat. It's an Irish thing, what they do at Rock the Boat. They did it at this wedding on the weekend. And they did the Rock the Boat. And they went out on the Richmond Street. They went all the way around the front of the Sheridan Hotel, came right back in again, and came right back into the hotel. Like, guys wouldn't do that. No. See, so that's that's where... And that's, that's that's another great memory of that. That was just mad, mad. Just And, like, I'm looking out, and I can see cars going... And they're not going to hear that music because yeah. they're running like I'm back in again and I had to play the track again. <laughs> magical. They were magical times, you know. Yeah. But I've done, Rogers TV used to do uh, a lot of local sports here and I've done commentary at the championship finals. I did it with uh, Kevin, uh, Luck, is it Kevin, Kevin Lucknan and Carmichael Murray where we did, they don't do it anymore. But I've done, one of the big things for GAA here in the 1980s was Sean spoke about this power screen seven sides, the gold watch tournament, yeah. which was immense, which was, which kind of got us the sky home games. Yeah. And I remember a friend of mine, uh, who's married to a carry girl. Uh, he was right into this media thing, you know, and he had the video camera and we bring it up and I would commentate in the game. That's cool. Yeah. And I was, it was really basically what it was. We'd pack, he'd package it later and send it over to the, you know, because we had like great teams from Dublin, uh, St. Mary's, CBS, and Armagh, Cole Island teams coming here, and Ross Common team coming here. Uh, yeah, team come from the Cayman Islands one time. Incredible. There's a vibrant GA scene there. The so, like, I mean, they, but they were, that whole weekend was mad, mad weekend. And then back to Armenian Hall, Scarborough, five, six hundred people. Gold Watch tournament. And not, trust me, like five, six hundred dollar watches. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then that led into Skydome Games. And that, I may not be as prolific on the, <laughs> the pitch as I would, but 
my claim to fame is I was the voice of Skyline Games in the in the yeah. arena, and my people listen who didn't isn't the John Hartup. So the Skydome is now the Rogers Center. The Rogers Center. Oh, my, Blue Jays, my claim to fame is because I would I do all the announcements. Some of them are Irish, not, but yeah. I would I was doing the announcements. And my claim to fame is coming into the game now. Number nine, Jack O'Shea for the All Stars. That's my claim to fame. Yeah, that's cool. Coming into the game now, number nine for the All-Stars, Jack O'Shea. And Jack O'Shea, when you get to meet guys like that, you go, he's just a, Jack O'Shea is a quiet, mild-mannered yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Very easy-going guys. And meet DJ Carey, yeah. you know, all these people that you go, they're just regular blokes, yeah. just regular blokes, just, you know. They're exceptionally good about their good Essen. Yeah, it's just, that's, that's, that's you know, those, those guys... Those were the halcyon yeah. days of GAA here. We didn't, we didn't know how good we had it then. Yeah, that was magic, magic. TSN. Yeah. Oh, magic, magic. And I was working for the GAA yeah. in Toronto at that time. It was so. Oh, yeah. Those were sweet days. Yeah. Sweet. You're just read a book on kind of a Japanese thinking called um, Ikigai, which is your for kind of trying to merge your. Trying to basically have a, a reason to wake up every morning, that there's something that you want to do and want to achieve that day. And obviously in the modern world, it's massively beneficial if you can make an income from that. Do you think cause, Do you think you could have done a radio show that was about something that maybe wasn't that, you know, wasn't Irish, basically? Or do you think that is really... Well, I, oh, it's, there's something magical about radio. And even... When we were first married, we got the first house. I always wanted to be in radio. I always thought that I should be in radio because I, and I used to enter competitions here all the time. There was a lot of big radio stars in Jane Nelson, Don Diener, Terry Steele, all these guys. Because I was brought up on, you know, living in the north, listening to UK radio because local radio was a big thing then. Listening to Tony Blackburn, Noel Edmonds, you know, people like that watching Top of the Pops, you know, right. We'd only really listen to radio at loan. That's all we could get because our team wasn't that strong signal then. So I always fancied myself as a Tony Blackburn, who's still going. Yeah. And I tried out, went for the National Institute of Broadcast, and uh, and I had always, I always wanted to be a radio. And yes, I had that dream, and it happened. It happened that I got I got on the radio, and I never shirked that responsibility. I'm still nervous, more anxious. It's good to be nervous. It's good to be nervous because you got something you don't want to let anybody down. So I'm, people might say that to me, no. I said, I still can't stand my own voice. There's a problem. I have a problem with my own voice or seeing myself. And then, you know, for whatever TV that I've done, I, you know, help out at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. You know, oh, I said, listen, I'm not there because I look like Brad Pitt. I'm there because I know what's going on in front of me. You know, we, we last year we did it with Carly McGraw on Facebook and got more feedback than ever because a lot of people tuned into the Facebook live stream. And so, you know, it's, you know, yourself, it's not, not everybody can, not everybody can lift a microphone and be comfortable. Yeah, it's fair Even what we're doing here. Yeah. You know, I say to people, you know, even when I'm talking to a bride and a groom or anybody who's doing anything, I said, no, look, can I tell you one of the hardest things in the world to do? Because you want to want to get them calmed down. One of the hardest things in life to do is to fry bacon in the nude. That's that's a tough thing. And then they kind of laugh a little bit. So I'm going to tell you one other, a very hard thing to do is, is to give someone a microphone and say, ah, just be yourself. Yeah. Because you kind of have to step, a little bit step outside yourself. And you get it. You get it. So what I like, you know, one of the, like, the things that I like to do at a wedding is, I like to do what's called a podium walk. So the one, so for instance, at this wedding that I did on the weekend, her sister was making a speech. And I said to her, can I play a piece of music? Her three sisters were over from London to from Cork, and she was here. So there's four of them in the room. I said, look, is there anything I can play? She said, look, could you play the theme, that song from White Christmas called Sisters? You know, Sisters, Sisters. So really what you want, you want somebody to come to the microphone as relaxed as possible. They're not going to be totally relaxed. But they get the joke. It's it's big, but it ain't that big. It's kind of let's let's roll with it here, and we'll all work out. I want you as relaxed as possible. It's it's hard, but 
it's hard for you to step outside yourself. Some people can do that. Some people can be quick, bit of brevity, have a one-liner. Just, just get them relaxed. Get them relaxed, and we're not, and it's easy. And you know, yeah. that's that's how we do it, right? So you know, they they when the bride and groom come, they wanted the theme song when the Leafs score a goal. Oh, you know yeah. that Hall and Oates one? Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, you make me feel, you know that one? That's, so, that, that, that's what they want. Yeah, yeah, so it's kind of just to get it nice and easy. Just to, like, any guest, you know, yeah. just, it, it's hard. It's not hard. Yeah. It's not everybody's cup of tea to grab a microphone. And no, it's not. You do a soliloquy, right? Sometimes, but yeah. I, I'm thinking, to just, it might wind down now, but as you're, like you, you talk about the, the the snooker game has been one of the important parts of your life, and then probably getting the the show. Yeah, uh, oh for sure. It's definitely the second. No, that was another. That was another aspect you, of my entertaining. You went home probably realistically, but just Ireland. It probably could have happened. Yeah, yeah, but just my, she was my wife was a bit worried at the time to start all over again. Yeah. Uh, but is she really is she from here. Yes, yeah. I came three and a half thousand miles to meet somebody from my own parish. Oh, so she's not from here. Sorry. <laughs> no, she's from home. She's from home. I mean, I came, she, the joke is she came in, she came to meet a rich Canadian and so did I. We finished up, we had the same family doctor and, you know, her brother was this guy who had moved to Canada in 1973. My sister's been here since the middle 60s. She came uh, through, we met, we met, we met at this place called the Four Provinces. We, you know, and that was yeah. it. That was it. That just, that's, that's how it rolls out. So and, what it would have been? a little bit easier to go home because the two of you are both from Belfast so yes but you chose to stay um obviously I, I think you believe that's a good that was a good decision to make yes yeah, yeah. I, now yes uh I have this little epitaph that I kind of like to live yeah. say to people and I if you get want to get prolific on the stage I was born in a great country but I live in a great country and I think that's you know there's there's look there's no utopian lifestyle out there for anybody, but you have to make the best of it. And uh, this country is as good as any. Yeah. Uh, so it's, and uh, I think if you put your head down, mind your own business, uh, you know, you enjoy the fruits and labors of, of, of what, you know, what you're about. That's what it is. Yeah. Just, you know, everybody's working hard here. Yeah. Everybody's working hard. That's, that's just, there's nobody, sure there's people fluffing about, but <laughs> you know that, right? But, yeah. but everybody's working hard here. Yeah. Everybody's, like you say, you got to get up in the morning, uh, put your two feet over the side of bed, get up and give it a shot. Go and give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah, because that's, you know, that's what I... So when that entertainment thing came, it was a natural progression for me because I was this DJ, MC, weddings, parties, weddings, wakes, and funerals. That's what used to be on my business card. Yeah, yeah. And I take over that radio, so that's just another level. And then to uh, come into TV work, uh, to... Uh, acting, yeah, uh, you know, and hopefully, uh, every so often you have to reinvent yourself. You have to, you have to kind of go to the next. So uh, then I started singing, and we were. I was doing a this guy that married to the Irish girl, uh, the Malt, my Maltese friend. He uh, karaoke was just breaking in the nineties, and uh, we started. We done a Two and a half year stint at the Royal York Hotel. I didn't know that. But it was a show. Yeah. It was it was me karaokeing, but doing a show dressed up, showing you what it's about. And in the nineties here, Toronto was like like we were second only to Broadway here. Shows were coming in. And the big show there was the Phantom with our own Colin Wilkinson from Dublin. And I used to do a parody on the Phantom, because all these people would be coming with weekend package, gonna see Joseph or Great shows with the Phantom, and I did this Phantom routine. And for the first couple of weeks, I used to mime it. And the guy said, "No, you're gonna have to sing it." So I sang it. So I started singing. That's not music of the night. So trust me, it's not an easy song. And I started singing. Started singing with a couple of groups. Started singing, and now the singing thing is now I'm now I'm singing. Yeah, now I'm singing. <laughs> is that just this? And so in 2007, I get to. Do another thing that I'm very proud of, Irish community here uh, with Arnold Park. And I was asked to perform when Anouk Duran, Mary McAleese was here uh, to open up Arnold Park. I was asked to perform at that party at Norway Park, down at Arnold Park. And I was privileged, which is another great 
thing in my life to sing the Canadian National Anthem. Oh, that's great. So that was a... And when people used to come here in the 70s family, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, you'd... Of course, you'd do the Irish pub experience. You'd do the Canadian thing. And Niagara Falls. Yeah. Niagara Falls, CN Tower. You'd bring like Aaron's up dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, weeks. you know the routine. <laughs> but you know yourself, Pa. One of the things now is Ireland Park. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ireland Park is like... Ireland Park's first. Yeah. And I say to people, look, there's wonderful displays of, you know, the great hunger all over diaspora around the world. But there's only one that has the corresponding statues that you see on the keys of Dublin, done by Rowan Gillespie. You see those statues on the, on the keys called the Departure. We have those corresponding statues right here called the Arrival. Yeah. And I, I say that. And I had just had two girls from Belfast who were standing here for a couple of days before they went to Jamaica. And they got very emotional, yeah. like almost to tears. And I go, what? I said, yeah, yeah, that's, see? So you might not think we have this history here, but listen, I go, oh my God. Yes, this is us. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I, was, I was a bit ignorant that didn't know we have an Irish history here. When I came here uh, as a 17-year-old, we have a very rich history here. And... What you're doing in this uh, university continues yeah. to, to to fly that flag for Irishness and what it is because that's there, there's a proud history of here of what what we've done through the Canada Ireland Foundation through this uh, U of T St Michael's College here it's proud we we stick your chest out no wrong with that again but we're not that we're not that people we're just <laughs> quietly confident keep tipping away yeah exactly yeah. exactly. Um, well, one last thing I want to ask you, on your right hand you have a kind of a green band and on your left hand you have an orange watch. Is that just... No, that, I, that's, I picked that watch up because it looked... <laughs> you know what? Uh, nice watch. I just bought it. It's just, <laughs> this was made by my granddaughter. That's lovely. And I need, she, she knows all about the Irish flag and I tell her about that, what the green is for, the white and the orange. And so my son was at the cottage with her on the weekend and she said, that's from kids, so I wear that. Lovely. That's the third one I've had. Nice. You because, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give it to you. Ah, uh, no. No, I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think it's because you, she'll make me another one. <laughs> because it's it's very unique, isn't it? It is very unique. It's cool. I noticed it the second you came in, because I, I like wearing Well, you wear it, Pop. That's cool. Because kid will make me another one. Lovely. Hey, Thank you. Look, there's, listen. We spoke about this before. Thanks for what you're doing here. Uh, media, this podcast thing, it, everybody has a niche. Long may it continue, my yeah, friend. Yeah, thank you very much. My story, my story's just a little bit different from everybody else. I, I tell, this radio show that I do, 35 years, I'm proud of that. You need to, anybody, you have a message you need to get out? Call me. Yeah. Call me. There'll be a lot of people listening to this who... I Call me. Bone, yeah. It's on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. Um, it's Chin Radio in Toronto. Live streamed around the world. www.chinradio.com. Click on AM 1540. I have, I have people listening to me all around the world. Yeah. I have lots of listeners here in Toronto. Uh, I have a guy who listens to me on his balcony in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Oh, yes. uh, this is us. We are, I just want to finish with this. What is it about us? There's a lot of things about us, but what is the, what is it about you Irish people? <laughs> well, we are very unique of how we've helped people out. You talk about different things, you know, there's been lots of money raised here. The reach out during COVID was tremendous. Ethna Heffernan, her Sunshine Volunteers, helping out people. A lot of them weren't even Irish. How they, how we look after each other. Why is that? Well, you can dumb it down for many. I like to dumb it down for this. Like I said, there is no T-shirt that says "Kiss Me, I'm Belgian." There's only one. "Kiss Me, I'm Irish," and that's kind of lighthearted, but yeah. you know, a bit of trivial there. But I talked to Mark McGowan, who you know well from this, and. I asked Mark this question, and Mark told me. He would, can, goes down to a lot of things, but 
we were the only colonized country in Europe. And that says a lot about us. We know what it is to struggle. We know what it is to to get peace and justice and to get freedom. And that's we're always striving for that. So we know what the downtrodden are all about. And we're drawn to the downtrodden. Because, you know, how many times do you hear of uh, forest Africa or around the world, Malawi, there's an Irish nun or an Irish priest or just an Irish person helping out. It just, that's how it goes. That's who we are. So we're all here, knocking it out. And hope I didn't talk to him. No, it's perfect. We didn't even get to talk about Joe Dolan, for God's sake. I know, you're a hero. Not my hero, but (laughs) I got to play Joe, which was another great thing because the Toronto Irish players, I had a hack that since high school, and the Toronto Irish players asked me to be in this play about Joe Dolan. What was great about that? I My son was on the stage with me, and I'm, I I try to convince myself all the time. Did I have fun during that? I think I did, but it was it was another great... There's a lot of th- great things that have happened in my life. I'm forever grateful for this country, for my family, my wife and my family, and for what we all continue to do to strive for Irishness, to make this country the greatest it is, because... That's who we are. Ireland's greatest export to the world. It's not found in a glass or a plate. It's just people. People, yeah. It's just people. That's what it is, no matter where you go. And that's that's how it is. Because we're, we're everywhere. We're everywhere and anywhere. And there's always the hands stretched out. So, anyway, well, there you go. Good way to finish this. Thanks, Hugo. Really hope you enjoyed that chat with Hugo. We could have had and we could have and did talk for hours. You only got to hear a snippet of our chat, but I hope you enjoyed every minute of it. Hugo is a legend in the Irish community here in Toronto and he has helped so many people and will continue to help many more to come. Once again, all feedback is welcome. You can email me. My email address is in the description of the podcast or you can find me on social media. It's always lovely getting messages from strangers and talking about the podcast and their stories of what brought them to Toronto. I would still encourage people to download the episodes and to share them with friends and family. Downloads are the easiest indicator for me to gauge how many people I'm reaching with these conversations, so I would really appreciate it. Thanks to Natalie Barabuzzi, who provided the logo for the podcast. And thanks to Shannon Heaton, who provided the music you are now listening to. You'll find all of her music on Spotify. There'll be another episode of Irish in Toronto in two weeks, and until then, it's long before.